everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini-series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini-series on the off-weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoy this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to Meet the Manager on TVP. This week we have Arjun Murti returning to interview Andrew Lydon. Arjun is a partner at Veritin, which is a knowledge and media platform with a focus on energy, technology, and environmental trends, a director on the board of ConocoPhillips, a senior advisor at World War Picnus, an advisory board member at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and he's the author of one of our favorite substacks, Super Spiked. It's a delight to have Arjun back as he is a natural host on the pod. We don't think it would be a terrible idea if he took Super Spiked down the podcast route. Andrew Lydon is the co-founder of The Value Team way back in 2013, as well as a fund manager at Schroeder's. He started his investment career at Schroeder's back in 2005 and was previously part of a pan-Euro research team that focused on telecoms, construction, and support service sectors. On top of his CFA, Andrew has degrees in intellectual property law and chemistry. Arjun and Andrew discuss the debate between value and growth dynamics and what it really means to be a value investor. An argument for growth using recent examples of growth companies that could have been value if one had been able to accept their growth potential. Energy and the pros and cons of the sector. And finally, Arjun takes on the devil's advocate stance with energy around the position of oil majors in Europe, the war in Ukraine, and the challenges of ESG in the context of investing. Enjoy. Well, Andrew Lydon, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. I'm not doing as good a job as Juan, but I'm very <laughs> happy to be the guest host today uh, to, uh, to to spend some time with you. Thank you for joining us uh, uh, this afternoon. Pleasure to speak to you, Arjun. I believe you are one of the original founders of the Value Team at Schroeder's. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It gives away my age a little bit. But back in 2013, when the value investors across the equities department at Schroeder's were formally brought together, there were were five of us, and um, I think I was the youngest one. But uh, yeah, one, I was one of those lucky people. That, that is fantastic. So I, I would prefer to actually end with some of your personal stuff. I actually want to get into some questions about value itself as an asset class. Perfect. So when we think about making investments, um, I think we can appreciate people might invest in equities for a little more return. They might prefer uh, more conservative investments like fixed income. There's many different types of investing. But if you stick with something like, say, large cap equities, these labels of value versus growth, it's something I've always struggled with. I think because I have an energy background, I get labeled as a, quote, value person. Mm. But I've never really understood 
why these labels are relevant. Can, can you maybe spend a minute on what does it mean to you to be a value investor? Well, I think those labels, to the extent that they relate to to sectors and things like energy or utilities or whatever being labeled value stocks, I I, th- I think they are pretty irrelevant, to be honest, in that, you know, uh, one of the fund managers who, who I worked with when I first joined here said uh, that if you stay in the market long enough, you'll see every company at every valuation. And so that, that very much applies to sectors as well, I think. And as we've seen a lot over the past few years alone, you know, different sectors come in and out of favor very, very quickly. So for me, a value right. investment is simply one that, you know, looks looks cheap on the basis of its established economic fundamentals. So based on what it has historically delivered rather on what we might hope it delivers 10 years in the future. So whether that's using a kind of Graham and Dodd type PE based on you know price to average earnings or similar kind of ratios for free cash flow or on a price to tangible book, it's you you can pick the percentage, but it's anything that's you know in the cheapest, let's say twenty percent, twenty five percent of the market on on that basis. And by buying those kinds of things, which include all kinds of companies in a range of sectors that people, for whatever reason, don't like, it might be that they don't like the sector. It might be that the company itself has has screwed something up in a kind of idiosyncratic way and just ha- having a difficult time. People don't like those businesses. They don't want to be seen to own them by their clients. They don't want to wear the underperformance that they may bring them. And that creates an opportunity for people who are willing to be a bit more thick-skinned, perhaps, or have a longer time period than a lot of other investors in the market to to come in, uh, try and pick out the ones from those those problem children, if you like, that are going to um, be able to grow up and flourish and benefit from the excess return that that delivers. So, yeah, I think I think those sector labels are pretty problematic, and in, everything needs to be taken on a, a company by company basis, basically. That's fantastic. You know, in energy things, and we'll get to energy in a little bit, but uh, things get labeled as sort of clean or dirty. You know, ESG friendly or not ESG friendly. I think these labels can sometimes be. Uh, a little limiting and arbitrary. I think when I think about growth, it, it often refers to a kind of a, a notion of top line, that it is something that is going to grow more rapidly, presumably grow into its valuation. Whereas I think you articulated value often refers to some inexpensive multiple, out of favor and so forth. And I, again, I've still always wondered, is are these the right perspectives? Uh, can it not be that something that is growing rapidly is actually a value today? I was wondering if you could maybe expand upon those those points a little bit. Yeah, so I I guess that's where value falls into two different camps, I guess. And I'm not sure of better labels, so I use these in that there's the the kind of Graham and Dodd traditional kind of value end of things, and there's the more Warren Buffett sort of end of uh, end of the spectrum. So the Graham and Dodd approach, which is, I guess is more like where the Schroder's value team is, is in that kind of deep value cheap based on historic performance or all those kinds of things much more what we'd sometimes call statistical value in that you can screen for it quite relatively easily and it they just are the cheapest things on those metrics in the market where buffett and some other value investors differ is that they are willing if they find a business that they think has the the barriers to entry or you know motors they might call it uh, to deliver consistent earnings growth and reliable earnings growth they are willing to pay a slightly richer multiple, perhaps, um, in order to pay up for that growth that will come in the future. And they they go out of their way to try and obviously pay less for it than they believe it's it's worth. But they put more emphasis, perhaps, on the 
the franchise values or the barriers to entry that, that the business has and how that will lead them to earn a premium return on capital, I suppose. But th- yeah. through both of those different camps, you kind of have this contrarian angle because wh- whatever you might say about Warren Buffett's value style, there's definitely a contrarian streak, that well, more than a streak that, that runs through all of that, even though some of the, it may differ in some, way, differ in some ways from the more traditional Graham and Dodd approach. Yeah, I think I think you've introduced some some great new concepts. One is sort of mo- the idea of momentum or sticking with what's in favor that does often get associated with growth. And uh, almost by definition, every value investor is going to be a contrarian investor. I think the part I struggle with when I think about these labels and these investments is when you have paradigm shifts. And again, we'll we'll get to energy in a moment, but you have this long track record in a sector. And again, let's use an old line sector. I'll use energy. It could be industrials. It could be any number of things. Uh, perhaps something's happened, you've had a down cycle, you've had a recession, what have you, these things are out of favor. How, how, how do you think through when it is appropriate to use what has happened historically to say we're going to have a reversion to the mean versus the risk of a paradigm shift where for whatever reason, the business has changed, the world has changed, and that old way of doing it could be worse, it could be better. How do you build in the concept of sort of paradigm shift as you evaluate historical performance and try and project it forward? Yeah, so it's one of the the key questions. We have our investment kind of framework that we we ask seven questions of every business when we appraise it. And one of those is because our the screens we use are backward looking in nature, we're typically on 10-year average historic uh, numbers, is that are the last 10 years are going to be a good reflection of the next 10 years. So that's an absolutely you know critical part of a, assessing a value investment, particularly when you've been using kind of those relatively, sim, relatively simplistic screens to to generate ideas. So it's something you're always vulnerable to as a value investor because you are, as you alluded to in your question, to some degree betting on not necessarily mean reversion, but some kind of movement back towards history. And obviously at certain points in time, history history does not repeat itself. There are genuinely new things and value investors, if they you know, don't foresee a paradigm shift, which, you know, by its nature, a paradigm shift is very, very hard to see, then they'll fall foul of that and it, it will cost them. And that's one of the um, one of the things you just kind of have to take on the chin and wear as a value investor, that every now and again, you're, the kind of implicit bet you're making on things being a, more like history than not, uh, you get wrong. But the the thing that gives us some comfort about that is when you look at the returns of value uh, over very long periods of time, you know, so you can go back 150 odd years in the US looking looking at this stuff. You know, if you think of the number of paradigm shifts uh, in the US or, you know, global equity markets over the past 150 years, you know, there are some, there are some incredible changes gone on that in period of time. And there have been an incredible number of companies that have been destroyed bluntly uh, as a result of those changes. Uh, and yet the the value factor still wins through. So I think it's um it's a matter of not becoming too obsessed or too focused on any one paradigm shift and just you know backing backing the averages basically that by putting that faith in in history and by sticking to those core value principles, you know the 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 historic track record of value still shines through. And I think a great example of a company that, if you stick around long enough, you get to be a, both a growth and a value stock. And, and apologies for the American example, as I am based here in the U.S., but is Microsoft, which mm. started out as sort of a rapid growth company, inventing this revolutionary software that somehow 
however long it's been, 30 years later, we're still using Microsoft Excel, Word, and so forth in the operating systems. We got the tech bubble. Uh, it became overvalued as a classic gloat stock often does. It became what I think was a value stock. And I think, is this the kind of company a value investor could have figured out, okay, something's changing. They have a new C CEO, Satya Nadella. Um, I think I'm going back to you know the mid-teens uh, of last decade. They're earning $2 a share in 2016. Mm. Uh, I believe they earned $10 a share in the last fiscal year. So they've quintupled earnings. Could one have viewed it as A, a value stock in 2016? Could someone have said some things have changed? And could one have stuck with it? Um, did it remain a value stock as it appreciated over the last uh, the last five or six years? I'm using this as an example. You no, can no. use a different one if you. I'm very grateful yeah. you use that example because it's one we used to use as an example in some of our slides. <laughs> so you've uh, okay, you've great. <laughs> you've, li you've lighted on a very good one there. So yeah, we in that as you as you kind of alluded to that 2010s period. You know, Microsoft traded at at 30 bucks. You could buy it on a P of 10 with a big cashed up balance sheet. And, you know, objectively looking at it, it might have been that it was no longer considered uh, wrongly, as it turned out, but no longer considered at the the cutting edge of, of technology or software. But it was clearly still very firmly embedded within basically every business on the on the planet. And so if you can buy those kinds of businesses on PEs of 10, that always looks, you know, you should do that all day. And so even when we didn't have a global fund to to run, we own Microsoft and some of our UK funds and a number of those other uh, kind of older school, what would now be considered older school te tech stocks. So HP at the time and Intel as well, some of those sorts of things. And yeah, to, to your point, the, everyone got incredibly carried away about the valuation of Microsoft into the dot-com boom. And it took a, it's a great example of where you pay a really high price for something on the basis that it's a brilliant business and it can grow and it can generate cash. And it goes ahead and does all those things quite successfully. But because you paid such a high, high price for it at the beginning, you made absolutely no money out of it whatsoever. So it, all the fundamentals the company delivered really relative to expectations, but a lot of investors still lost lots and lots of money, which I think it's always important to remember those kind of dynamics that it really is what you pay that is that determines the the outcome of the investment. And then obviously, as you alluded to it, at the other end of that for Microsoft, the market fell in love with it again. And often what we're trying to do is buy the business when it's on that kind of slightly in that slightly depressed state where the market doesn't necessarily hate it, but it's just bored by it. Uh, and then it turns out that the market comes back to view it in a normal way again and, and you make a bit of money. But with Microsoft, it's obviously swung back to the other extreme in that the market's completely fallen in love with it again. We sold it, as, as often happens with value investors, we sold it far too early if you look at it ex post. And it's been, yeah, it's obviously performed incredibly, as you say, both in terms of fundamental delivery, which is the, uh, the way we would think about it, but also in a, on a share price perspective as well. And, you know, again, another one just from the US, because we owned a number of these at the same sort of time, would be a number of uh, US kind of pharma stocks. So, again, we owned Eli Lilly at that point in time because it had a big patent cliff coming up. Again, I, I can't remember the share price, but it was very depressed for a period of time and in that similar sort of 2010s um, uh, period. And then again, you look 10 years later, you look what the share price chart has done uh, by kind of backing mean reversion. And, and it, 
again, it's not only got back to where you might have hoped it to, it, the share price has flown past it and it's, you know, one of the most highly rated and loved large pharma businesses out there. If I go back to the Microsoft example, and I think one of the things I've, I don't know if I'd say it frustrates me about the value perspective, which again, I share a lot of it, or something I question is the idea of when to get off. And so on the one hand, I think there's an instinctive uh, impulse within value people that when momentum comes in, I need to get out. And that if it's popular, it must be overbought or expensive or what have you. I think it still comes down to the fundamentals of the company. So if a company like Microsoft has gone from two to three or four dollars a share of earnings, again, hindsight's 2020. But if one could have laid out how cloud infrastructure and all the things they're getting into was going to lead to $10 per share of earnings in 2022, wasn't it still a de facto value stock along the way? And how do we guard against kind of the opposite psychology that I think value people have, which is to instinctively say, it's now popular. On current multiples, it's maybe a 20 or 25 PE, uh, and therefore it's not a value stock anymore. How, how do you how do you guard against kind of the opposite of what I think momentum investors go to, which is you jump out of a stock too soon? Or, or is that not a valid critique of the value philosophy? No, I, I think that's a pretty valid critique. And again, I think to some degree, it's one of those things you just have to to take on the chin as part of being a value investor and that kind of by almost by definition, you're you're going to be jumping out of stocks when people are starting to get really, really excited about them again, because it's by not owning them when people are really, really excited that you're you're able to add value and, and avoid the kind of value destruction that the people who bought Microsoft in 1990, 99 cre- uh, uh, lost. The the momentum one is is tricky, and it's one we uh, we toy with a lot. We've we've done quite a lot of work thinking about the the way that value and momentum can can interact. I, I don't think we've really got it boiled down to a perfect formula yet. Uh, and if we do, we probably won't tell anyone. <laughs> probably keep that to <laughs> probably keep that to ourselves. I think you you have to just resign yourself almost to the fact that you are going to be getting out of these things, and then lots of them will, or a number of them will continue to to do very very well. You can try and do things to to mitigate that. You can try and average your way out in terms of pricing. Uh, sorry, in terms of uh, selling the shares and so on. And I also think to some degree, it, it comes back to that, the kind of dichotomy between the different types of value investor, again, if that's not too crude a way to think about it, in that if you are at the more Buffett end of things, that's willing to look at a company like Microsoft and say, okay, well, the the barriers to entry and the, the kind of return on capital profile and so on of the company, that means I will, I am willing to pay 25 times for it today because I think it genuinely will deliver more growth than the market expects. And therefore, I do consider it cheap today, despite it being on 20, 25 times. That's where we kind of diverge with the the kind of more Graham and Dodd end of things, which again is where we are. And we just think that if something gets to 20 times, the odds kind of tilt out of your favor in terms of it actually going on to deliver what it needs to justify the share price. And so we do tend to be the people that are looking back at the Microsoft share price chart thinking, well, it would have been lovely if we'd, we'd ridden that all the way up. But in reality, we we never would have done. And I think it for us, certainly us, it, it works better being the people that jump off a little bit too early than it does trying to pick the ones that go on to be the the darlings again. You know, it's, it's, it's a great answer. Uh, you know, I think... Um... 
when I think of sort of my critique that I offered of the value perspective, I, I think on the one hand, I say that because when I think of value investors, and this may be some personal bias, I think of I think of value investors as the one who have done a lot of the fundamental work, who really dig into the numbers, who care about profitability and cash flow and free cash flow, and don't fall in love with the dream, uh, which can often get over-touted and over-hyped, that the numbers actually have to pencil out. And so I, I retain an optimism that a value investor can figure out that there has been a paradigm shift in cloud infrastructure, that with a new CEO and a new direction, that we can pencil it out, and that it isn't about 20 times current earnings being too expensive. It is about uh, believing in that. And I actually have a confidence in that. But on the other hand, probably the pushback against what I'm saying might be that I'm picking an obvious winner in hindsight here, Microsoft, you're expressing a discipline that on average... Uh, when you look at companies that get to these kind of valuations, yes, Microsoft was successful, but I'm sure there's 10 other examples I'm not thinking of where uh, your methodology or discipline is stuck. And I, I assume that's part of the point. Yeah, that's right. So it, it's, you know, the one the ones that go on to be massively successful with the kind of vertical share price charts are always the ones that, that lodge in your brain in the same way that when we speak to clients, the ones that have halved in three months are always the ones we get asked about most, not the ones that have gone up the most. You know, the, those things just just stick in your brain and it's trying to, as you just mentioned, trying to, trying to be a little bit more data-driven about it in terms, okay, well, these are the things that have lodged themselves in my brain. To what extent are they representative of the actual, you know, fact in the world? And, you know, we premise what we do on the fact that most businesses that trade on those multiples and and there are a number of studies that have sort of shown this the percentage of them that go on to deliver the earnings growth that people expected or to deliver five years consecutive EPS growth of above five percent say that the, the percentage of companies that actually manage to deliver that uh, is is very low and so that's another part I guess of how we try and nudge the odds in our favor of um, of finding out performing stocks let me try one other example. This is uh, an even more extreme American company, <laughs> Tesla. So in 2019, it lost $4 a share. It had a $50 billion equity market capitalization. These are approximate numbers. It was larger than Ford or GM or a whole bunch of other companies, despite selling a fraction of the number of cars. I think in those days, its sales were measured in tens of thousands, maybe 100,000, certainly well below today. In the last year, which was actually a down year, it earned over $4 a share. Mm. And it was a $19 stock in 2019. In 2022, it earned $4 a share. So 19 divided by four strikes me as a low valuation. Of course, the stock ended up exploding to the upside. It went from 19 to $225 currently. That's a $700 billion valuation. This is perfect hindsight. If you were able to model out Tesla and say, you know what? It's a fantastic car. I believe in electric vehicle sales for the luxury market. There's going to be some policy incentives to support electric vehicles. Uh, whether we can agree or debate the degree to which EV helps climate or not, a lot of people believe it does. And so here's a leading company that has kind of created a new paradigm for how to sell and get people to buy these electric vehicles. If we knew that Tesla was going to earn $4 a share, if we penciled it out and believed in all that I just said, could it have been a value stock in 2019? I guess yes. If you if you knew if you knew you were buying it on that multiple, unfortunately, back in two thousand and nineteen, we didn't have the. But you here to tell us that, <laughs> so, yes. so which is unfortunate. I, I don't, really. I'm not claiming to be on the right side of this. I, I think it's really just challenging what it means to be a value investor. And our folks like ourselves 
too, too focused on what happened historically. And again, maybe I'm just picking two successful paradigm shifts here, but there's something about Tesla that I think really, it seems emblematic of this bubble stock market we've had. And it's often picked on. It's the focus of a lot of shorts. And I'm, I'm neither a bull or bear on Tesla as a stock. Actually, I personally love the car. I've driven one for eight years. But it just strikes me that this is one that neither the bulls nor bears really accurately describe. I, I don't think Tesla is going to have an infinite market share going forward. So there is some limit to how big this company can be. And $700 billion does seem <laughs> really, really large for what they're probably going to be. But I also think the bears have been completely wrong about this. At a $50 billion valuation, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it was a value stock with hindsight, not at the time, but with hindsight. I'm just trying to reconcile, again, what can I learn from this as someone who's more value-oriented? Am I just picking, again, the one in a hundred example of where the paradigm shift did happen, or is there a lesson in here? I think it it may be the one of remembering (laughs) the one where the paradigm shift happened. Yeah, the, the lesson in there, I guess, is that for any number of reasons, that's a very high profile business, very high profile person running it. It has, you know, and done all kinds of exciting stuff away from cars as well. Um, if you knew you were buying it on a, a P of, of 10 or whatever, th- three, four years ago, it, it would be a value stock because its equity market valuation was clearly a lot, much, much lower then than it, than it is now. There are some kind of classes of company, I guess, that value investors tend not to own. And certainly the way we generate our ideas, it tends to be difficult for us to own purely by the way we screen and but we, the way we think about stocks. So stocks without much of a record of financial delivery uh, tends to be one of those because we are focused on, to, to some degree, on historic, say, cash generation or profits. You know, it's very difficult to get that from a and a startup, so let's say a, a biotech or a, a, a tech startup or whatever, you, it's very difficult to us to apply the kind of value techniques to, to that kind of business. Um, and I think Tesla would probably uh, have fallen into to that category. Uh, it's also quite difficult for us to be on the the right side of paradigm shifts in that way for the, for a similar sort of reason. We can often find opportunities finding the companies that are on the wrong side of the paradigm shift, where the market's over-exaggerating how bad it is. Uh, so we, we often get opportunities that way from kind of structural changes in markets. But on the other side, it's, again, particularly the way we do it at the Schroeder's value team, it, we very rarely own those, those kinds of stocks. And, and on the financial history kind of thing, it, it can be not necessarily the traditional stocks that you'd think of in terms of tech or biotech. It, it could be an insurance business or a mining business. or But if there's no uh, reliable financial history that we can look at, doesn't mean we can't develop a valuation case for it, but it, it makes it more challenging to do that. And I think you're, you're making some great points. I'm, I'm picking two cases here where we know the outcome and both were successful and both probably would have qualified as value with perfect hindsight. But there's just a discipline to the strategy and the approach. And so, yes, we might miss a Tesla that perhaps, and we could probably still debate it, was a value stock in 2019, but there's 99 and probably 999 other examples where the paradigm shift didn't happen and that lack of historic delivery played out. So, I mean, I'm very respectful and appreciative of the discipline that comes with the value person. I think the last area I wanted to talk about in this context of what it means to be a value investor is the notion of volatility 
in the earnings or revenues or cash flows and what it means to you, it, it to me strikes me as another area where there's this big dichotomy where, quote, growth investors always prefer the businesses where there isn't a lot of volatility in their underlying earnings and cash flow, at least for a period of time, where value investors, it's actually that very inherent volatility that might cause a sector to come out of favor. And energy or mining, these are all great examples of that. What, what does volatility mean to you? How do you think about it in terms of your approach to investing? What are the right metrics for volatility that we should be looking at? Um, and, and love to hear what you, you have to think about this. Uh, I guess for me, volatility is just synonymous with opportunity. So if, if there's certainly when we're talking about share prices, if, if there's volatility out there, uh, it means people are getting nervous. They're, you know, they're not sure what to think about particular issues. And if you're willing to step back and take a long-term view, so we typically hold shares for three to five years, if you're willing to step back and say, okay, well, I've got no idea where the share price is going to go in the meantime, but I think that you know, in the medium term, it should be worth X amount. Then you should the volatility is should be meaningless to you, and you know there are issues around you know, like managing clients' expectations about volatility of of funds and those sorts of things. But the way we try to think about it is that you know we're buying a stock today, we think it's worth something in the future. As long as we're broadly right about what it's worth and we make the return that we hope to make, the route by which we get there in terms of share price. We try not to care too much about that. So, and again, that's that's part of what separates value investors, and perhaps perhaps accounts for a little bit of that value premium. Is that value investors tend to be longer term? They tend to be willing to to hold difficult things for for longer, and and lots of investors aren't willing to do that. They they come under pressure for the performance, or just because they. They look stupid and they don't like looking stupid. I'm absolutely fine with looking stupid. Like There's not much I can do to avoid it, to be honest, um, whether in investment or otherwise. Uh, and as a value investor, you have to be willing to be willing to do that. In terms of volatility of uh, cash flows and profits and so on, I think, again, they can be great, um, great drivers of opportunity because at, at some level they tend to drive share prices as well, particularly, as you alluded to, with, with energy and so on, for cyclical businesses, there's to some degree a predictability about the you know the nature of the cycle. You, you, the timing of it may be difficult to call and those sorts of things, but you know that there's going to be a capex cycle over a period of time or a, a, a general economic cycle over a period of time. And the market doesn't like those cyclical companies when things are getting worse, but as long as they have the financial strength to make it through whatever it is, the, the bad bit that happens in between. Again, that's where the value, value investor steps in and takes the, the longer term view and says, we're at a cyclical trough now. Nobody wants to own this because it's fallen a lot. Um, but we are willing to, to step in and buy it. And value investors are of, often painted with this guise of being kind of mid, miserable and penny pinching and stuff. And to be honest, most of the time, that's probably completely fair. Like we are pretty miserable. Uh, and, and by definition, we do have to watch every every penny. But there's points in time in the economic cycle or the stock market cycle where we're actually the optimists. Like we're the people out there who can see through whatever the the short term noise is, uh, and we're the people there thinking about a you know a, 
a less miserable future and a, a profitable future and so on. So possibly, probably for the minority of the time, but we, we are actually the optimist in the stock market when everyone else is miser- miserable. Andrew, I hope this answer, someone at Schroeder's will cut out the segment of this answer. It is just such a great lesson and you made so many great points. And I'd like to just emphasize a few of them, which is volatility should be meaningless to folks, or at least, uh, and I might rephrase it as it shouldn't be a negative variable. I think there's so much emphasis on smoothness. It leads both investor and smoothness, meaning year to year revenues or earnings or what have you, that it leads to both companies. I think we saw this with GE in the 1990s. I'm going to say that that's my example of a company that fell in love with trying to ensure smooth earnings and what were inherently unsmooth businesses and it led to some challenges. That's my example. Uh, And it causes people to avoid cyclical sectors when, frankly, there is actually a lot of certainty in the volatility. We know energy is cyclical. It's going to have peaks and troughs. And you can go back to actually 1870 as there's a substacker the Crude Chronicles has done and chart the financial history. The cycles are actually reasonably predictable. You may not get the exact year correct. And within that is a lot of opportunity. So I really, I really sincerely love this answer. And I do hope uh, it will get cut out in some manner and highlighted as a great lesson for both the discipline, the optimism, the opportunity, and optimism, as you correctly highlight that I think value investors do have. You have to be pretty optimistic to have wanted to buy energy uh, in 2020, mm-hmm. at, you know, just after negative $37 oil, the sector had collapsed, and, and certainly no one could have been a pessimist and wanted to buy energy in those times. So let, let me turn a little bit now to energy. Uh, and, and Juan, in introducing me to you, had said, this is a sector you do spend a lot of time looking at. I'd just love to hear, what is it that you, I'm going to say, love and hate? These may be American phrasings, but what do you love and hate about the energy sector? Well, I, I think, again, this is going back a few years, it it just happened through coincidence to to bring a number of you know kind of different threads of that were going on in the world together. So it obviously around COVID and so on with the the negative oil price and that's that sort of thing. The the oil and gas stocks kind of fell into our our screens, our natural like hunting ground, if you like. And they did so. They'd been some of them have been there for some time, but they did so seemingly uh, having reined their capex in quite a lot. So whilst we'd looked at them a lot in the prior five, maybe 10 years, we could never get our head around the fact that they were on PEs of six, but they generated no cash flow ever because they were looking for for, for oil elsewhere. I, I don't need to tell you all, all the stuff they were, they were doing. So they came onto our screen and we had more faith that the kind of paper profits that they could generate might actually be turned into cash flow at some point in the future. And we also took the view that the current level of oil price that was in the market at the time was clearly unsustainably low. We would still be using oil and oil products in in five years' time. And that so there wasn't a there may be structural trends going on, but it wasn't as though oil and gas demand and other products they make was, was going to disappear. So there was that kind of contrarian part to it, the the normal day-to-day value investor stuff going on. And it also at the time started to get dragged into the the ESG debate, which is one I guess as you'll know from speaking to Juan and myself before, is um, something as value investors we've thought a lot about and perhaps pushed back on a lot of the conventional thinking or simplistic thinking about that in the that, that happens in the investment world, still happens in the investment world a lot. So for me, it was both a, a genuine value opportunity like any other, but it also had the kind of uh, the edge of 
kind of embodying a lot of the way the world was moving at that point in terms of the focus on quite a simplistic interpretation of of ESG. And it was very easy just to point at oil and gas companies and say, okay, well, they they are intrinsically bad businesses. Uh, and because they were going through a difficult time and performance was poor, nobody really pushed back on that. And there's not a lot of scientific or logical basis to that. I don't think that, that they can be inherently evil. And so uh, that kind of yeah, it embodied all of those different debates and, and opportunities for me. So uh, it was one, it's one we've spent quite a lot of time looking at over the past few years. Yeah. Uh, that's great. And, you know, one of the things I'd observe is, you know, I, I, have fo I focus on global energy companies, but clearly with a, a strong, you know, US and Canadian bias in terms of the companies I look at or have looked at in my career. Right now, we're in this kind of really interesting time where, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but where, what European investors are asking, let's just focus on the largest companies out there, the what we'll call the super majors or near super majors. Uh, it does seem like in Europe, they're under more pressure to transition into lower carbon energy sources. It seems like in Europe, I'm being very generic here, there is more of a broad-based societal buy-in of the need for Europe to transition in a more meaningful way, where in America, there's more debates about exactly what we should do, how we should do it. There is pressure on American companies to be, quote, you know, thinking about ESG and these kind of things, but there's far less pressure to get into low carbon businesses and so forth. What, can you offer any observations about why there's this different mindset? Is it just uh, get back to that basic societal point that Europeans generally, and including the UK as part of Europe here, are more in favor of stronger climate action? There's some different reasons for the different pressures on European big companies versus American companies. Any thoughts you have, I'd be interested in. Well, so you, Europe is, you know, Germany would be the the prime example has in, again, rightly or wrongly, embraced and invested a lot of money in putting renewable energy in place. And so I, I think it's a natural kind of flow forward from that, that governments and so on have tried to incentivize the companies, you know, which they're very closely connected, whether via shareholdings directly or, or, or otherwise, to try and to try and pursue those same aims and as a result, investors in those societies have put pressure on companies as well to to change. And going back to the kind of 2020 period, it, it was very easy to do that because all companies weren't making any money. Human-caused climate change is a genuine thing. So it was possible to put those two things together and say, okay, well, let's, get, let's, let's make all the oil companies change. Fast forward two years, which I, I think we're in a much more I'm not sure it's necessarily in a balanced place yet, but it there's been both sides of the argument are have been are being represented to some degree, and that you've still got the the need to transition and to clean up the way that 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 power is generated and so on. But we have on the other side, because of the kind of sad practicalities of what's arisen in in Ukraine and so on with the the oil and gas price, it has actually been hammered home to people that oil and gas are pretty important and we only notice them when they go up in price a lot or when they're not there, when their supply's threatened. And there does need to be a, you know, a sensible rather than purely idealistic debate about how we get from one place to another and who the right people are to get us from one place to another. So, I mean, again, it's just a personal view, but I don't really see oil and gas companies as natural owners of wind farms. That doesn't seem logical to me. Some of the stuff 
ENI and others are doing about maybe hydrogen or biorefining and th those kinds of things seems a seem a lot more in the natural wheelhouse of an oil and gas company. So hopefully, yeah, having started from this kind of naive, idealistic place, the European oil and gas industry is gravitating towards something a bit more along the lines of, again, per personal view, but al along the lines of, um, of common sense. The, the other thing to observe, which, again, highlights some of the, the tensions that exist here, is that BP was probably the, the major in Europe that, was, that has set out the most um, wide-ranging uh, plans to, to head towards renewables. Uh, and then the oil price goes to $100, and that changes. And they start talking about transferring at uh, transitioning at a slower pace and those sorts of things. So, and it becomes much more of a dilemma for for shareholders about, okay, well, if we make them spend the money on transi transitioning, they can't pay us the dividends today, and they're they're printing all this this cash as the head of BP foolishly perhaps, but you know it's an accurate assessment. They are printing a lot of cash at the moment, and. Do people want that in their pocket as dividends? Do they want it reinvested in more oil and gas that can continue to generate cash for some period of time yet? Or do they want to, to own wind farms? And I mean, I, I know which camp I'm in. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather they sustained oil and gas uh, supply and transitioned into things that are kind of much more within their skill set, as well as returning cash to shareholders. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's... It started from a very idealistic place, much more so um, than perhaps in the US, which my knowledge of is not comprehensive. I'll caveat with that. But where things have perhaps been driven a bit more by pragmatism, both in terms of science and also financially, um, than has been the case in Europe. So I, I happen to personally agree with your viewpoint, as I, as I think you know, and, and I've talked about with Juan on this very podcast. But if I play the devil's advocate, and sure. if I stick with the Microsoft example and use it towards energy companies, and again, we'll stick with the super majors. It could be European or American super majors. So Microsoft had this legacy software business where you have to go to a store and buy the software and put it on your computer. They've shifted Excel and DOS to now Office 365, a much more modern way to you know to to sell software and it's been good for their business and at the same time after some fits and starts they have transformed to still having that legacy business uh newer and better today by virtue of having office 365 instead of buying individual copies of the software but now this cloud infrastructure and other related businesses that are about the future of the world does such an analogy and and as a result they've done very well as a company they've made more profits the returns on equity and, and free cash flow is excellent. Their earnings per share has quintupled. The multiple the stock is traded at has gone from 10 times at its trough to I believe it's over 30 times today. And these are my estimates and based on consensus data and so forth. So, so please check yourself these figures. But does that kind of paradigm shift opportunity, why, why shouldn't energy companies think about transition in that type of way? Is there something about energy transition that could be different than say, what's happened in the technology industry. And again, I'm using the successful example of Microsoft, but let's just stick with that example. No, I, I think that's, uh, you know, businesses, any business that's been around a long time has to adapt to, to changes over time. You know, you you can't be a business pretty much whatever it is you do. And if, if you're around for 100 years, you must have adapted to quite a lot of stuff on the way. So there's there's no reason that the oil and gas majors can't transition towards, again, maybe some of those areas we talked about in 
uh, related to refining and, and so on over time. But the, the key is for these changes to happen at a sensible pace. And, you know, energy systems, electricity grids, those sorts of things, they're profoundly complicated pieces of infrastructure that most people, me included, don't come anywhere close to understanding. And to change them quickly, and certainly as quickly as some people seem to want to do, of not really actually thinking about science and details and so on, and just, yeah, think, thinking in, you know, it's great to dream that stuff, but you can't actually make it make it happen. So certainly they, the oil and gas companies can reinvent themselves. I can't necessarily see the same parallels as Microsoft in terms of whether oiling, uh, biorefining, hydrogen, those things, whether they'll able, enable those businesses to be bigger in the future than they have been historically, I, I don't know. But there's, there's certainly a future that they can, they can head towards that, that, that's viable. It's just as with all these things, uh, it just needs to be done at a sensible pace. And a lot of people seem to be in a hurry, which isn't particularly helpful. My joking answer to your very professional answer, which I appreciate, <laughs> is that rather than get into wind or hydrogen or these kind of things, perhaps they actually should get into cloud infrastructure or some of these other <laughs> businesses where there are clear profits to be made and where you actually can transition much faster. But again, we'll, we'll, we'll keep this more serious uh, at, at the moment. So, you know, I, and I think you offer an excellent, I'm going to call it a critique of this idea that you can change these energy systems quickly. Uh, and I don't even know if we'll have time to get into the fact that there is the lucky 1 billion of us that live in the US, UK, Europe, Canada, Japan. And then there's the other 7 billion people, some of whom are gaining some luck, but many of whom, of course, uh, don't even have access to, 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 to any form of modern energy that we're going to have to figure out how we solve for. But through all that, is there a critique of the majors that comes from either climate activists or ESG advocates in particular that they do get right, that you say, you know what? energy companies should do better on this one or two or three things? Well, there are, there are definitely areas. And again, I think you've talked about, you know, the, the way oil and gas businesses should be more responsible for their, you know, their methane output and those sorts of things. And there, there are inevitably other environmental kind of related issues that the oil companies uh, can and should, should address. And so to the extent that they're not, it's reasonable for whether it's ESG advocates or the relevant government organizations or whatever to to put pressure on them to to do that. I mean in an ideal world shareholders wouldn't have to do that at all and the the relevant authorities would would take that up and fine people for not doing what 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 was right. But so there are certainly valid places to to criticize the, these businesses. I just think on the whole if we take it to the recent voting down of the the Exxon motions in the in the states I think the people pushing for those things would have a lot more success if they didn't make them quite so extreme. If again, if if they put things up there for vote that suggested just small steps in a particular direction, it would be much harder for a lot of people and the company to object to them. Uh, whereas as it turns out, you put something a bit more extreme on there and 80% of the shareholders vote against it. So again, it comes back to this idea of everyone's in a hurry or a certain group of people are, are in a hurry, want to get things done as quickly as possible. And that's not really the best way to take anyone with you, whether the shareholders of the company, whether the government, whether society more broadly. Um, so so they certainly do get some things right, but I think they don't help themselves in the way they they behave sometimes. And there's a lot, to come back to your your comment previously, a lot of 
just implying the values of of privileged people sat in nice offices in London and New York and so on uh, onto the rest of the world, which, you know, as it happens, it was thinking about that and reading things people have written on that that really uh, got me more interested into where a lot of this ESG stuff was going because it seemed to be pretty scientifically uh, and kind of socially bankrupt in a lot of those um, a lot of those regards. So someone who shares a lot of your value perspectives and fundamentals that you look at and so forth, I am struck by the fact that when I look at the outlook for any of the uh, Europe or UK-based super majors and look at their earnings and cash flows, and as an analyst, I'm speaking just as an analyst here, I can debate whether some of the newer things, new areas they're going to get into are going to be profitable or not. But I feel like I could write off a lot of those investments and still get to a core traditional energy business for the largest European and UK oil and gas companies and compare them to the Exxons and Chevrons and other large US companies and conclude there's a pretty big valuation gap that is not simply explained by kind of the greater pressure to invest in low carbon that does exist in Europe versus in the United States. And it, it's kind of an odd thing. Um, Portfolio managers and investors are often subject to investing within their jurisdictions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna remove that for a second and say, if you are running one of these companies, um, if you are have a choice of where you can be headquartered, is it not a no brainer decision to tell these big companies go to America, go to Abu Dhabi or Dubai, or go somewhere else? You're gonna face constant pressure here in the Europe and UK, or is this just a temporary thing? And ultimately, you think. What I th again, maybe I'm wrong about the valuation discount that European oils are trading at, but can it go away? Will it go away on its own? Or do some of these companies need to consider moving out of out of Europe if they want to get a fuller valuation? Well, I think there's Let's put aside whether that's you know geopolitically possible and all those kind of considerations. No, you could snap your finger and relocate to <laughs> Houston. Could, would you do it if you're one of these large companies? So I guess there's two things there. There's the the kind of oil and gas sector specific uh, portion of that. And there's the general uh, US market premium versus Europe in terms of just general market multiples and so on. Uh, because there's a, at the moment, it's a you know reasonably well-observed thing in the UK at the moment that quite a lot of companies are, um, you know, taking their list away from London and going to the States because multiples seem, uh, at least for some time, to have been kind of structurally higher there. So on that just general valuation differential argument, yeah, I mean, you you probably would pick up Shell and drop it in Houston or, or wherever. Uh, I'm not sure the French government are going to let you take Total anywhere, uh, but but yeah, it it it, it makes that would make sense. I think there's then the kind of uh, what I'll call cultural differences in terms of the the approach to to ESG and those sorts of things. And again, there's two aspects there. There's the the pressure on the government for where from governments for where these companies spend their money, and there's the approach of investors to whether they're willing to own those businesses or not. Which obviously, an increasing number of investors have just excluded them from their from their opportunity set. Whereas in the in the US, I haven't seen any numbers. I'm just based <laughs> basing this on what I read in the paper. The um, certainly the the number of people excluding the oil and gas sector is considerably less and you know at least until very recently the um the pressure from government on so on to put to, to direct cash flow into projects that may or may not make 
anything close to an acceptable return is is considerably less. Um, on that second part, in terms of the cultural difference, I I think things in Europe are improving again, particularly with the the Ukraine situation, making making people focus a little bit more on how energy security is important, how oil and gas supplies are something that need to be invested in, not just kind of uh, kind of run down and and ignored, uh, and that you know maybe Germany burning more coal as a backward step rather than a, a forward step. And you've got you've got some businesses, you know, I, I guess E and I would be the one that leaps to mind that are doing a pretty good job, I think, of balancing inve- investment of free cash flow in sustaining production, um, investment in some kind of options on the, the future. Again, we could just, I may not have be particularly favorable into the technologies or sectors they're putting that into, but they're at least giving themselves optionality for the, the for the new world and also giving money back to shareholders. And I think it needs to be a balance, particularly when cash flows are as bumper as they are now. It needs to be a balance of those three things. And, you know, hopefully companies are more, as again with BP, are moving more back to a more balanced approach than a let's throw all the money at wind farms type approach. Well, Andy, Andrew, as we wind down here, maybe just some personal questions uh, in terms of your 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 life and so forth. You know, tell us a little about yourself. What do you like to do for fun? Uh, well, I heard the previous podcast, I think the first in the series, where this person claimed he was a value person through and through. He bought at discount stores. He bought stuff on eBay. Uh, is that does that describe you? Or to tell tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you like to do. No, I think that was Simon, and I'll distance myself as far from him as I possibly can in in all of my comments. Hopefully, um, <laughs> no, no, I um, yeah, my I I like to run, but the you know that's the way I like blow off steam or whatever. I that's uh, it's something that helps me, you know, think think clearly and mull over. It's I kind of think about it as either time to think about something specific in a lot of detail. Or think about absolutely nothing, and both both of those uh, things are something I find uh, running very very useful for. In terms of value proclivities outside investment, I'd like to think I kind of run through the middle of uh, the people at the extremes of our team, of which Simon would definitely be, be at one extreme. And I'll throw it out there because he probably won't. Well, he might not listen to it. Uh, Nick, our one of our co-heads of team, who's probably at the more, um, not the value end, should we say, of the uh, as a as a as a as a consumer. So yeah, I, you know, like a lot of people on the team, had a relatively inverted commas normal upbringing, and again, part of being a value investor is to, I think, quite an important part of it is to remain kind of attached to reality in that kind of way and not get too swept up in the the bubbles that inevitably envelop London or New York or any of these these other financial places. You know, when you're looking every day at businesses that are going bust or going through very difficult times or where they're laying off thousands of people, hopefully that keeps you a little bit more connected with the real world. And again, to come back to your example of the, you know, the people who do have plenty of energy and then the billions of people who don't have plenty of energy I think it's easier to think about the those other seven billion if you're less wrapped up in the bubble of the billion. 
Andrew, I think this is a great place to end. Let's stay grounded in reality. Let's not forget about the other 7 billion people on earth. And let's try and avoid bubbles, especially as value-oriented people. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today on the Value Perspective Podcast. It has been my honor, my pleasure to be a substitute host today in place of the esteemed Juan. And uh, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm sure you've got Juan pretty worried. Uh, because <laughs> so, so I, yeah. I think he's gone, so it's fine for me to say that. Yeah, no, so thank you very much for your questions. Like, pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Likewise. Cheers. <laughs>